What a blessing, amen? Linda, thank you so much. That was a great blessing. Take your Bibles and open with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. I was speaking to Linda this morning before the service. She said, what are you preaching today? I said, well, I'm preaching about the church of Sardis. She says, I'm very familiar with that. I said, it's the church in which Jesus said that they were dead when they thought they were alive. She says, yes, I'm familiar with that. I am in those churches all the time. It's sad, but true, isn't it? In 2014, the president of Lifeway, Tom Rayner, wrote a book called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. It came from an experience he had had years earlier when he was a church consultant. There was a church in the Midwest that had called him and said, would you come and help us understand what's going wrong? They were a declining church. They understood they were declining and they needed help to discern what was happening. So Tom Rayner went in and spent time with them and After three days with them, he met with them and confirmed their greatest fear. His diagnosis was that they had a terminal illness, that they were a dying church. Now, he was right and wrong. He was right in his diagnosis. He was a little bit wrong in his timing. He met with the leadership and said, I project that in five years, this church will close its doors. Ten years later, he got a call from the head of the church saying, we're closing our doors. Now, after this experience, Tom Rayner decided to do an autopsy on this church. He wanted to understand the cause of death. The reason was because he's seen what we've seen, and that's that there's a lot of dying churches out there. There are a lot of churches closing their doors. It wasn't too long ago in which a survey said that 900 evangelical churches in America close their doors every year. 900 churches in America closing their doors. This is a massive problem. He identified in this uh, autopsy 12 factors that seem to be a consistent cause of death. All of them are helpful. All of them are important. But it's the first one that got my attention. He says, the one consistent factor you see in every one of these churches is that it is always a slow erosion. Meaning, churches don't die quickly, churches die suddenly. It also means that there are a lot of churches, listen, out there dying and they don't even know they're dying. That is exactly the situation you have in the church at Sardis. This is a church that would have never called a consultant to help them understand what was going on in their church. They believed they were doing great. They believed they were alive. And what made it even more difficult is that they had a reputation that fit with their own belief. The reputation of the church at Sardis was they were an alive church. You get this idea that this is the church that hosts conferences. So you can model your church after them. They do things right. The greeting seems to be good. Things are well organized to such an extent that everyone, when they talk about the church of Sardis, says the same thing. Oh, that church, that is a church filled with life. And yet Jesus, consulting them in this letter, says that when he looked at them, he saw the exact opposite. If you're there at Revelation chapter three, say amen. Amen. Listen to what the Lord says. And the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, 
but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I have to tell you, I find this to be a terrifying passage of Scripture for a couple of reasons. It's terrifying because I can't imagine any diagnosis worse than the one that Jesus gave to this church when he looks at them and said, yes, I know you think you're alive, but when I look at you, I see you as dead. What could Jesus say worse to the church than you're a dead church in the eyes of Jesus himself? But what's more terrifying than the diagnosis was the fact that everyone around them seemed to think the exact opposite. You have a reputation of being alive, which means not only are they self-deceived, which I I find easy to happen, it's easy for us to be self-deceived, but often when we're self-deceived, there are those around us who notice the way that we've been deceived, but this was not the case. When everyone visited the church of Sardis in this powerful, influential place, this wealthy city, and when they talked about the church at Sardis, everyone said the same thing, that church is alive. What that means is that whatever it is that people thought made an alive church, and whatever it is that made them think that this church was doing what they needed to be doing and was a model for other churches was exactly wrong that everyone seemed to be deceived, that everyone who visited them had the wrong idea of what an alive church is. And the reason that's terrifying to me is that it makes me think, what if what we view as an alive church is not an alive church in the eyes of Jesus Christ? I just find it so interesting that out of the seven letters to the churches, there is only one church in which Jesus says nothing positive. And that's this church. And it isn't interesting that the one church of which Jesus has nothing good to say is the one church of which everyone seems to have something good to say. And my question is, how does this, how does this happen? <laughs> I mean, how do you get to a place in which your reputation is so far from reality? The truth is, I, I think the history of Sardis gives us some insight into this. I think Jesus, knowing what the city had been through, writes this with an understanding of what was actually in their hearts and in their cultural understanding. I want you to picture this with me. Sardis was located on a high mountaintop. There was in front of the city of Sardis a 1,500-foot cliff going straight down. And so you picture this city way up on a hillside. In front of it was a 1,500-foot cliff. Behind it was a strong, large wall that had been built in such a way that this was known as an impregnable fortress. It was known that no one could capture Sardis. As a matter of fact, it was a common idiom in the day. To say to capture Sardis meant to do the impossible. 
If you said, well, that's like capturing Sardis, you would be saying, well, that's to do the impossible. The problem is, is that the people in Sardis believed this. They believed that they could never be conquered. But they were conquered not just once, but twice. We know that the first time they were conquered, they were conquered because a soldier who was given the responsibility of standing at Sardis to make sure no enemy was coming, dropped his helmet. And when he dropped his helmet, he came out through a secret entrance and grabbed his helmet and then came back up, showing the enemies who were watching exactly how to get to the top of Sardis. Now, my thought of that is this. If your job is to guard the city, I would think you would have your helmet on. But this soldier had his helmet off and dropped it and therefore gave away the secret of how to enter the city and it was captured not once, but twice. The problem with Sardis as a city is that they were lulled to sleep by their false sense of confidence. They were wealthy, they were strong, they were safe, they were comfortable, they were confident. The only problem was their level of confidence put them to sleep. They stopped watching, they stopped being vigilant, they stopped working, they stopped caring because they believed what everyone said about them. And while they believed what everyone said about them, there was enemies coming to take them down. And they were conquered because they were lulled to sleep by their false sense of confidence. Listen, exactly like the church of Sardis. You say, how how is it that that a church dies? I would say it dies exactly this way. A church dies when it is lulled to sleep by its false sense of confidence. Their confidence in their location, their confidence in their building, their confidence in their history, their confidence in their programs, their confidence in their people. And all of a sudden, that false sense of confidence lulls a people to sleep until the time in which they come to find out that there's no longer any spiritual life left. You see, the problem in Sardis is that they'd fallen asleep and the solution was that they needed a spiritual awakening. I mean, there, there are five commands in this text. Wake up, strengthen, remember, keep, and repent. Five direct commands. All of them are calling the church to a spiritual awakening. This is what the church needs. It needs a spiritual awakening. Now, I, I want to talk about the kind of spiritual awakening this church needs, but before I do that, I, I need to tell you two things. I need you to listen carefully. I was on an extended fast earlier this year and was really just praying for our church and praying for wisdom and insight that the Holy Spirit would help me to see what this church needs and where it needs to go. And I begin to think that what I needed in my own personal life and what our church needed was a spiritual awakening. And as I begin to study that, I came to Revelation chapter three and listen, it was this text of scripture that led me to preach this series on the seven churches of Revelation. Because I believe we need this. I believe I need this. I believe our church needs this. The second thing I need you to know is this. It is so easy for us every time we talk about what the church needs to do. The church needs this. The church needs that. To think, that's right. The church needs to do that and the pastor better get doing it. That somehow, that the way in which everything changes is when the pastor changes it. 
Now, I have a great responsibility as your pastor. All of your pastors and staff do. But do you realize a church is made up of individual believers in Jesus Christ? And if anything is going to happen on a corporate scale, it first happens on a personal scale. If we want a church that is awakened by the Spirit of God, that means we need to be awakened by the Spirit of God. I need to and you need to. So I just, I just want to be real clear that when we talk about what the church needs... I'm saying what I need, and I'm saying what I believe you need. And we just need to be real careful to think, to not think that it's someone else's responsibility to see something great happen in the church. No, 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 God wants to bring a spiritual awakening, and it begins in you. So what kind of spiritual awakening do the church at Sardis need? What kind do we need? Let me give you three ways in which we need a spiritual awakening. The first one is this. We need an awakening of spiritual power. An awakening of spiritual power. I want to encourage you to write that down. An awakening of spiritual power. I get that from verses 1 and 2. Now, when I say spiritual power, I'm not using that just in the way we often use the word spiritual. I'm meaning literally an infusion of the Spirit's power. Holy Spirit power. An awakening of the Spirit's power. Now, I've told you every week that almost everything you need to know about these churches and what they need is found in the description of Jesus Christ at the beginning. So in verse one, it says this, to the angel of the church at Sardis write, the words of him, Jesus, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Every picture of Christ pointing us back to this vision of Jesus in Revelation one, and all of them specific and different to the need of that church. What he wants to do is give them a vision of himself and that vision is gonna meet their greatest need. So what is this vision? Well, the vision of the seven spirits is a reference throughout Revelation. You can see it in chapter one, verse four. You can see it in chapter four and chapter five. You can see it in Old Testament text. It is a picture of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. To the words of him who has the seven spirits, a reference to the fullness, the number seven really implying the idea of fullness or completeness, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the one who has the seven stars. You remember from Revelation 1, the seven stars are these angelic beings, these representatives of the church who oversee the church and report to Jesus of what is happening in the church. So all of a sudden in the first verse, you have this picture of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the angels who are representing the churches and reporting to Jesus what is happening to the churches, the point being Jesus is fully aware of what is happening in the church. He sees everything. He sees behind the scenes. It doesn't matter what your reputation is. Jesus always sees the reality. And the reality that he wants to see in the church is the reality of a church ablaze with spiritual life. Ablaze with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. If you're wondering where I get this language of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, look at Ephesians 3 verse 19. You don't have to look now, write it down. In which Paul prays that the believers in Ephesus might be filled with the fullness of God. An unbelievable prayer request. But the desire of the Lord for every believer is that we might be filled up to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Every ounce of our being filled with the life of God by the Spirit. The only hope for the church at Sardis 
And their one greatest need was the supernatural movement of the Holy Spirit of God. Which means that the one thing that they had forgotten was their need for the Holy Spirit of God. They'd become so confident in their own gifts, their own abilities, their own resources that they no longer felt the need for the Spirit in their individual lives. So individually, they were not seeking to be clean and pure and holy vessels, praying that they might be filled with the Holy Spirit. As a result, when they gathered, there was all kinds of things going on, all kinds of people present, but there was one person not present, God. It is amazing to me how many things the church can do without God's spirit. You know this, right? We're gonna talk about this more in in, in just a minute. But it is true, it is possible for us to do all kinds of things without seeking the spirit of God. I mean, how many of you, I'm just, let's just be honest this morning. How many of you this morning or throughout the week prayed that you might be filled with the spirit of God, that you might be a holy and a clean vessel? You say, well, well, how does the church get filled with the spirit when individual spirit-filled members show up? That it's, it's really not that complicated. Now, there are times of great spiritual awakening and great revival in which there is a supernatural outpouring of the Spirit of God on a group of people. But I'll tell you this, that never comes upon a group of people that have not been seeking it. So how can, we, how can we have a service where God shows up? And you know what I mean by that. You say, well, God is omnipresent. Yes, I'm talking about the manifest presence of the Lord in which in a very specific and real way, God comes and moves among his people by his spirit and brings new life and new power. How does that happen? It happens as a group of people pray and seek it individually, come to church filled with the Holy Spirit of God And then all of a sudden, you have a large gathering of people seeking the Lord, filled with the Spirit, and God comes and manifests himself. It is very possible to gather a large group of people in a church building without God being present and working and moving. And the reason I know it's true is because it's happening all over America right now. You know it's true. This is the beginning of a dying church. They have forgotten their need for the spirit of God. And the scary part to me, the scariest part is how long a church can go without the fullness of the Holy Spirit and still appear to be alive. That it's masked by all of the things that they're doing, all of their programs, all of their people, all of these things that are happening, yet there's something missing. And that's exactly the point of verse two. Look at what he says. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So there's something not yet dead. For here's what he says, for I have not found your works complete. What that means is this, is there are all kinds of works they're doing, but they're incomplete. Why? Because they're not accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can have a Sunday school class without the power of the Holy Spirit. You can sing and preach and gather and have programs without the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know this is true? I'm getting very little from you this morning. You know, are, are we on the same page? Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you know this is possible? It happens all of the time. So you can fake through all of your programs and 
all of the people that something alive is happening, what you cannot fake is a real movement of God in which he shows up and infuses the church with new life and new power. And I believe that's actually what you want. I think, I think that's what you want. That's what I want. I think it's what you want. I think all of us long for something more. I think many of us have a sense that God is on the move and we want to see this here. And when we look at the history of our church and the great leadership you've had over the years and the place that God has put us, we long for something more. Let me just say this. The more that we're longing for is for God to come and infuse our activities with his spirit. Let me just say this. This is why I've called us to prayer and fasting. So we're in a season right now of 70 days of prayer and fasting going along with this preaching series. I'm writing a prayer guide every week. Sunday school classes are going through this. Let me tell you why. It's because all throughout scripture, we see this paradigm that when God begins to move in a supernatural way among his people, it's always preceded by a group of people who are wanting it and hungry for it and paying the price for it. I believe Acts 1 and 2 is a paradigm for how the church works. It works like this. People pray, they get hungry, they long for more. God pours out his spirit. The result of that is all kinds of things happen and all kinds of people get saved. That is beyond explanation. Why? Because it's ordinary people filled with the spirit of God. That's what God wanted to communicate to us. At the beginning of the church in Acts 1 and 2, that listen, if you want to see the supernatural work of God, go after it, seek it. I believe in James 4, 8, draw near to me and I will draw near to you, the Lord says. You say, well, how can the Lord draw near? I thought he's everywhere. This is showing the difference between the omnipresence, God is present everywhere, and the manifest presence in which as you draw near to the Lord and as you seek him and go after him, you will experience more of him. And so it is with the church as we seek him and pray and say, Lord, we want more, we want more, we want more. It is in that kind of church that God will manifest himself. This is why he says to strengthen what remains, to take what is there, to take what you have. What does it mean to strengthen it? It means to infuse it with the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't be satisfied with just going to Sunday school. Go to Sunday school filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't just be satisfied being a husband. Be a husband filled with the Spirit. Be a wife filled with the Spirit. Be a parent filled with the Spirit. Seek the Spirit of God. This is a church that simply missed the Spirit of God. The church is dying if it does not see activity that can only be explained by the presence of God's Spirit. Awakening of spiritual power. The next one is this. We not only need an awakening of spiritual power, we need an awakening of gospel priority. Write this down. An awakening of spiritual power and then an awakening of gospel priority. That's verse three. Verse three says, remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. Remember, that word there doesn't just mean bring to mind. This is a common word throughout all of Scripture. You see it a lot in the Old Testament. When God calls his people to remember, he is calling them to bring it to mind and put it into practice. So when he says, bring this to mind, remember this, he's saying, think about it and act upon it. Well, what is he calling them to remember and act upon? What you have received and heard. You say, well, what is it that they've received and heard? Well, at the very foundation, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
How did the church in Sardis begin? Because someone came and preached the gospel and somebody believed and then more people believed and it began by a gathering of people who had heard and received the gospel of Jesus Christ. What it seems to have happened here is the very thing which brought them together. The very reason for which they exist at all is the very thing they had forgotten. And again, you have to know how easy this is to happen. How easy it is for us to begin by our belief in the gospel and having our lives transformed by the power of the gospel and gathering because we just want to happen and other people want to happen and us and we love the gospel and all of a sudden, 15, 20, 30 years down the road, we're not doing anything with the gospel. We're not talking about it. We're not sharing it. We're not using it. And this is exactly what he's saying. He says, that thing which you received and heard, that thing you need to keep. Look down at verse five. He says, to the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And listen to this next phrase. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Does that that sound familiar to you at all? Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the father. He is making the exact same promise here, reminding us of the truth of what he said in verse three, that what this church had forgotten is confessing Christ. Now listen to this. I'm I'm preaching hard to you this morning because I'm preaching to me. I've been dealing with this and struggling this all week. God has just taken me out and beat me up with this text this week. And so I'm doing the same to you. Listen to this. If the level of our spiritual life in the church, I mean, the real determination of our life is how much we're sharing the gospel. How alive are we as a church? And let's don't don't think, well, pastor, what do you, no, just you, you. This, This church is made up of individual members. If your level of Claiming the gospel, sharing the gospel determines our level of life. How alive are we? And you see, that's why it's so easy to have a reputation of being a lively church when in reality, God is saying, well, you're not doing, you're not doing anything. Well, remember what brought you together? The only reason you exist is because you got saved and you loved Jesus and God transformed your life and did something in you. And you exist to be a gathering of people seeking the Lord and then leading other people to trust and follow him not only leading people to Christ, but making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is what the church is about. Lord willing, in January and February, I'm gonna be preaching a five-part series on our mission, our method, and our membership. Mission, method, and membership. What we're doing, how we're doing it, and we need to know who's doing it with us. We don't have a clear understanding of who is a member and who is not. Those three things need to be dealt with. Now, let me tell you something. I'm not gonna tell you anything in those five weeks that is revolutionary. All I wanna do is bring two things, clarity and simplicity. We need to be, have a clear understanding of what it is that God has called us to do so everyone can share it and then a clear understanding of exactly how we're gonna do it and then a very clear awareness of who's actually doing it with us. That's all. I mean, that's just my vision of the church. Someone in our membership class last time, and I love this question, I'm thankful for this question, said, Pastor, what is your vision for Prince Avenue? Where do you see Prince in 10 years? And 
I love it. I would ask the same question. I just always feel like people are disappointed with my answer. My answer is this. I see us doing the basic things we're doing better and better and better and better. That's it. I mean, I just want us to be a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled church that does the basic things right. And every year, I want to do the basic things better and better and better. That's my grand vision. Better at evangelism, better at missions, better at our equipping, better in our small group classes. I just want to do all those things better. But this is no massive secret what the church is to be doing. The problem is we get so busy doing a thousand other things, we forget the few things that we have to do. Remember when my dad was here? He said most churches are getting an A in everything that doesn't matter and an F in the one thing that does. This is exactly what's happening at the church of Sardis. And so he says to them, he says, keep it. Keep the gospel, hold on to it and repent. Listen, repent not of what you're doing, but repent of what you're not doing. You're not being faithful to confess Christ. You've forgotten why it is that Jesus saved you to conform you into his image to the praise of his glorious grace that others might be brought to him through you. Repent of what you're not doing. Keep the main thing, the main thing, an awakening of gospel priority. And look at the warning he says. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent if you will not wake up, meaning there is time and God is gracious. We see this in every letter. I just absolutely love it. There is time. There's time. This morning is the time. Wake up. If you will not though, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Listen to me. There are churches that God will let die if they don't choose to seek his life. He will just let them die. And he's letting churches die. There are churches all over the place who are closing their doors. Why? Because the Lord has left and they can hold on as long as they want to, but the Lord has gone. The glory of the Lord has departed and he will come against them if they do not turn. I just want you to notice something. Our first idea was of power and our second was of priority. Do you know these two things go together? Think about this with me. When you start to lose your priority, you start to lose your power because when you stop doing things that require God, you stop going after God. So when we just start doing all of our stuff, and I really feel like this is a temptation in a church like ours. Listen to me. I feel like there is a sense here that if your pastors just keep you busy and, and, and have the place is clean and the music's good and we sing a hymn every once in a while and... and we're greeting you and just kind of, we just do that kind of stuff. Like keep this going, keep this busy, enough stuff on the calendar. You're all gonna be okay with us. What I wanna say to you is you should expect way more from us than that. I mean, that, that's not the end all. The end all is not our gathering here. The truth is we exist as pastors to equip you to do work and to model that work for you. I just think this is what's happening over and over that When you don't have a priority of leading people to Christ, you're not gonna get on your knees and fast and pray because you don't need Jesus to do what you're doing. So he says there's this this gospel power that we long for and what makes us long for that is because we wanna see people saved. We wanna see lives transformed and marriage changes and children adopted. That doesn't happen in the flesh, it happens in the spirit. An awakening of spiritual power, an awakening of gospel priority. Let me give you the last one, we'll be done. An awakening, listen, 
of moral purity. An awakening of spiritual power. An awakening of gospel priority. And last of all, an awakening of moral purity. Verses four and five. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now listen, if he says you still have a few names that have not soiled their garments, what that means is the majority of names have, correct? What he means by soiled their garments is they're walking in immorality. And you've seen in the last three letters to churches, the same thing come up over and over and over again. If a church tolerates immorality, the church will die. If a church does not take sin seriously, the church will die. This is what he's saying. He's saying you've been conformed to the world. You don't any longer look like a distinct group of people that you slowly begin to look more and more like the culture around you. There are only a few who have not. You say, what does he mean by this idea of soiled their garments? Listen, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ means this. It means you believe that you do not have what is required to have a relationship with God. God requires perfect holiness and you don't have it because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What do we need? We need to receive the righteousness of Christ because we don't have it ourselves. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, who lives a perfect life. He dies a criminal's death. Why? So that he might take upon himself our sin and we might then by faith receive his holiness. So when we trust in Jesus Christ, what we're doing is saying we believe you alone can give us the righteousness we need and we believe that it is credited to our account when we call upon the name of the Lord. Now we are then in the eyes of God clothed in the righteous robes of Christ, which are always viewed as this pure white robes. But the problem in the church is there are those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and they're soiling their white garments by continuing to walk in sexual immorality. I, I don't know how Jesus could speak more clearly in any of these letters than he has to make sure we understand that moral impurity will kill the church. It will ruin your life and it will ruin the life of the church. And by the way, purity and power go together as well because there is no Holy Spirit power in a vessel that is not clean and pure. To the degree to which you are clean is the degree to which you can be filled with the Spirit. And he says this in verse five. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. What an unbelievable promise to those who know Christ. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You say, who will he confess his name? He says, those who confess my name, I will then bring before the father. As we confess his name through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, through following the Lord in our public profession, through baptism, he says, as you're confessing the Lord, I will confess you before my father. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Now let me just let me just conclude by helping you see one thing here. Revival and spiritual awakening are a supernatural work of God. Stay with me. I've got two more minutes. Revival and spiritual awakening is just a supernatural work of God. When God and you can define it a thousand different ways, but what it is is a supernatural, sovereign outpouring of the Spirit of God that brings new life. Listen, I'm going to say it again, but it always comes on those who want it and seek it. 
God rewards those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He draws near to those who draw near to him. And there are certain things that attract the presence of God and certain things that hinder the presence of God. Prayer and desire and hunger for God and evangelism and purity. These are the ways in which we live, the things that we do. Listen, that attracts the presence of God. Prayer and fasting, what is the point? What is it? It is, a, it is a demonstration of our hunger for God. God, we want more. And God has said, the Father who sees you praying and fasting in secret will reward you. That is an absolute promise. Those who pray and seek him will get the reward of the Father. And I believe the reward of the Father is more of the Father, just a, more, a greater experience of him. He wants to pour himself out in great measure. And those things attract the presence of the Lord, but in the same way, impurity and self-confidence and pride and prayerlessness hinder the presence of the Lord. So we are either attracting the presence of the Lord or hindering the presence of the Lord, and yet everything we want to see happen depends upon the presence of the Lord. It is possible for us to quench the Spirit and grieve the Spirit. It is also possible for us to be filled with the fullness of the Spirit. I just think as I meditate on this text, the most important thing to remember is this is really about me and you. I mean, is your reputation better than the reality? I mean, is this true of us individually that we have a reputation of being alive, but if anyone knew the reality, there is not much spiritual life there. This is where I think we apply this message. What is my reputation is that reality? Because what God cares about is not your reputation. He's not impressed by that. He cares about the reality and he is drawing you near this morning. He's saying, listen, I wanna give you so much more of myself if you will just come to receive it. Do you long for more of God? Do you long for a greater spiritual awakening? I do, I long for it. I long to see it here. Let's tell the Lord this morning, Lord, we are ready. We want to have more of you. Let it begin with me. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.